This morning, our topic is church discipline, preserving God-glorifying unity. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to consider how the Bible instructs us to practice church discipline and how doing this well strengthens unity in the church and protects Christ's reputation. So we'll also think about how we as members bear a responsibility to be involved in that discipline process. So the model for church discipline in the church is the discipline that our loving Heavenly Father exercises as He deals with us. So we're going to consider two passages from the book of Hebrews. First, Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines those He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Also, Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that second half of Hebrews 12, 11 is one of those verses that if we stop and dwell on very long, I think we would all say that what we desire is to have yielded in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But we also have to recognize that part of the way the Lord does that is through the discipline, discipline of the sons he loves. So we're going to consider two forms of church or of discipline this morning. First, we're going to think about formative discipline. This is that idea of leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching. For example, when the word is preached to us, like, Lord willing, it will be this morning, and we're convicted of our sin, or when Christians encourage each other through small groups, like, Lord willing, they will tonight. That's formative discipline. And passages that come to our mind ought to be things like Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Colossians 3, verse 16. So formative discipline is important because God uses it to prevent the sin that would require corrective discipline. That'll be the other type of discipline we'll consider with the bulk of our time this morning. But this idea of formative discipline, this is that discipline that should be taking place in our lives every day. So vertically, this formative discipline takes place as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time in God's Word, as we sit under the preaching of the Word. We are being corrected by God's Word, by His Spirit, through prayer, and through one another. That is that vertical correction that we receive from the Lord. And then horizontally, we think about how we receive that correction through living lives of faith with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's that refining that we do every day in the lives of one another. This is where we lovingly and prayerfully consider how to correct one another, to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. That's that idea of corrective, I'm sorry, of formative church discipline, formative discipline in the ways in which that we joyfully ought to want to participate in that and to know and be known in the church, such that we give one another the, the, the license, the responsibility, we bear that responsibility for one another to lovingly correct each other for the glory of God. That second um, discipline that we're going to consider and spend most of our time on is that of corrective discipline. So on the other hand, corrective discipline is just that. It's seeking to correct sin in a believer's life for the purpose of the glory of God being not marred or another way to say it positively, to be rightly put on display 
through corrective discipline would be that calling a brother or sister back from something that is damaging to them, damaging to the church, damaging to the reputation of Christ, and to see them repent and to be restored to right relationship. So this includes everything from privately confronting each other to formal excommunication. That is where the church would put one out of the membership of the church because it can no longer give credible profession to that person's faith due to their unrepentant sin. So you'll see there on your handout, the purpose of corrective discipline. Well, one, I think we have to start with the fact that the Scripture commands us as a church to exercise corrective discipline when it's necessary. In other words, this isn't something that we get to pick and choose, but rather this is something in faith, in obedience to Christ, we have the responsibility to uphold and to protect and to guard the reputation of Christ within the church. So you'll see there on your outline, first, let's consider the good of the person being disciplined. So discipline is loving because it warns us and corrects us of our sin. And we ought to profit from that. And for that person who's living in unrepentant sin, it clarifies that his or her actions do not support a proper confession or profession of faith in Christ. In other words, the way that they're acting is contrary to a life that has been changed by the gospel itself, contrary to the indwelling of the Spirit. Second, the good of other Christians. So we'll consider the good of other Christians. So as, as they see the serious nature of sin and its consequences, we have to consider the good of others. In other words, people are watching our lives. Third, for the health of the church as a whole. So it stops sin that could lead to strife and conflict within the church or confusion to those less mature Christians about what it means to follow Jesus. Fourth, the corporate witness of the church. Church discipline protects our corporate witness to a watching world. So people notice when there is a whole community of believers whose lives are different from the world. And they can easily discount our message when our behavior looks just the same as the world around us. So all four of those add up to the main goal of church discipline, to make known the glory of Jesus. So you'll see there the local church exercising church discipline. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about how we can exercise church discipline for our good, the good of one another, and the glory of God. And to do that, we're just going to walk through the questions that you have there on your outline. So first question there is, what if someone sins against you? So first, what do you do if a believer sins against you? How should you react? Do you give them a piece of your mind? Do you give them the silent treatment? Do you say nothing? Do you build up resentment in your heart? Do you tell others about that and therefore gossip about that person? What does Jesus have to say about what we ought to do. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So first, we're said it's the step would be that we're to go to the offender. So we should go and talk with the one who has sinned against us. For the argument of our time, we're going to call that person the offender. But if he won't listen, we're to take a few others along. If he still refuses to listen, we should tell it to the church, which should remove him as he refuses to repent. And we'll consider those other steps in more detail here in just a moment. Let's look then at this first step. Go to the offender. In most most instances, the first conversation will resolve things. It ought to resolve things. We ought to live in such a way with one another that if we've offended our brother or sister in Christ and they come to us, we should want to clarify. We should want to not justify our actions, but just to say, I'm so sorry that my words hurt you. I'm so sorry that I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? So in most instances, the first conversation will resolve things. So either he'll repent or you'll realize perhaps that you were mistaken. So how can we prepare for a conversation like that? And why do we say perhaps you'll see that you were mistaken? Well, sometimes we hear things the way that we hear them. And because of sin in our own lives, we decide that that person has offended us. So let's think about ways in which we can evaluate whether or not we should take that first step. First, we should pray for that person. Pray for the person who has offended us. Pray for the person who has sinned against us. And helpful even think, uh, to think through ways in which we should not clarify or, or have our plumb line be just that we were offended. In other words, I could speak the truth in love to you and that be offensive to you because you're living in sin. And then I could say, well, you've offended me, therefore you must have sinned against me. And that would be a misrepresentation of what Matthew 18 is calling us to do. In fact, that would be the most loving thing that I could do, would be willing to offend you uh, to point your sin out to you, as long as I go to you in love. So one, I want to pray for the person for whom I feel has sinned against me. Pray that they would grow spiritually, that they would desire to know more of Christ. And as we're praying for those that we, that we have been offended by, it will soften our hearts toward them in preparation to talk to them. Second, make sure that you have good cause to go to the offender. So we ought to be careful to choose our words when we think about having good cause. So be ready to explain what it is that you need to say to them. Perhaps don't go saying, you're proud. Repent or I'll tell it to the church. Right? That, those are true things for Matthew 18, but probably not particularly helpful. Rather, choose your words carefully like brother or sister based on the words you're choosing. I really fear you're speaking out of pride. Do you think that might be true? Give them the opportunity to examine them themselves. Third, 
Examine your own heart and make sure your motives are proper. So make sure that you're not going to the offender out of anger, revenge, an attitude of superiority, or some other sinful attitude. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. Make sure your desire is the reconciliation of the relationship for the good of both you and the one who has offended you. And that that primary driving factor for why you're going to your brother is the glory of God. And Jesus says, confess your own sin first, and then you'll be able to more clearly see your brother's sin, but not without doing the heart work yourself first. Fourth, be careful talking to others about this person's sin. You see here that Jesus says, go and talk to them, you and you alone. Jesus doesn't say your best friend or the offender's close friend. Go talk to them. Now, is it fine for us to seek counsel for a conversation that we know we need to have? And I would say perhaps. Perhaps in so much that you can objectively receive that counsel that doesn't build up a case for you or that then would vary off into gossip. So be very careful that that conversation does not become gossip because in that you too have sinned against the one who has sinned against you. And I would say you need to ask their forgiveness. So remember that even when you need counsel from another person, you can almost always get advice, godly counsel, without mentioning the name of the one who has offended you or has sinned against you. Finally, when you do talk to that offender, remember to act and speak in a spirit of gentleness in humility, and in love. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Fascinating how these Proverbs like 15.1 and things that perhaps we as parents or as children have heard from our youth, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's those same passages that God would want us to call to mind in our adulthood, in our life together in this covenant community as members of the church for us to apply to our lives, not as six-year-olds, but as 56-year-olds. Because so easily, when we're offended, do we want to return fire with fire. But we're reminded that a gentle answer turns away wrath, whereas a harsh word stirs up anger. So all of these things will make the step of approaching the one who has sinned against us more effective. And in so doing, preserve and protect the church's unity by avoiding obstacles such as pride and gossip. Before we move on to our next step in Matthew 18, let us make two further points about this step in Matthew. First, you may be wondering, do I go to my brother for every little offense? And I would say to you, most certainly not. Love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs tells us to look at the offense 
is a glorious thing and to demonstrate patience and forbearance. So when should we go? Well, two questions perhaps to think about that. Number one, has the offense led to a broken relationship between you and the one who has sinned against you? Does it come to mind frequently when you think of that person? Is that what you think of? The offense. If the answer is yes to any of these, then you should probably go and talk to the one who's offended you or the one who's sinned against you. Two, what's the danger of this sin to the one who has sinned against you? So keep in mind what James writes. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5.20 Is the sin that we're talking about endangering the person's ability to reflect Christ to the surrounding world? Is it, a, is it a sign of larger struggles, or could it lead there? So there would be two questions to think about. Do I go to my brother for every little offense? A second question would be, when should I go? And Jesus tells us to initiate a conversation whether we're the offender or the offended. Matthew 18 tells the wronged person to seek reconciliation. But Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says if you think someone has sinned against you, that is, you're the offender, then it's also your obligation to speak up. In other words, as I think or reflect back on my words to my children or to my wife or to my coworkers or to church members, if in that the Lord is using my reflection to bring about ways in which I have sinned against someone, I don't sit back and wait to find out whether I've sinned against them and have them come to me. It's appropriate and right for me to go to that person and say, hey, I'm concerned that the way that I spoke earlier didn't uh, honor God. I was sharp with you. I wasn't gracious with you. I was unkind and unloving. And to head that off, to be proactive, rather than sort of sitting back and folding my arms and saying, well, if I've sinned against them, they'll come to me and let me know. So it goes both ways. So Matthew 5 even says that if you're on your way to worship God and you remember your brother has something against you, we should stop. Go to them and be reconciled. This is how much Jesus cares about relationships within the church. It's why it's critical for us to examine our relationships with others before coming to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper. All right, so then let's move on to step number two, taking one or two others. Who are you to take? Well, if the offending person won't listen when you go to them in love, having prayed for them, having prayed for yourself, having thought about your words, having the glory of God on the front lids of your eyes, if you go to them and they won't listen, and the sin is clear that has been committed, we're to take one or two others. And this serves two purposes. First, the offender may more likely listen to a neutral third party than the person who's been sinned against. The other person also serves as a witness to what happened at the meeting in case discipline advances to the next step. Again, don't think witness in the courtroom setting, but being able to say, if it should have to go to step three, taking it to the church, then a neutral third party can say, Yes, we did, according to Matthew 18, go to this brother or sister. We confronted them with their sin, and they were unrepentant, unwilling, un, 
able to listen to us because of their sin that so easily entangles us. Let me offer a few thoughts on this process if you ever find yourself in this stage. First, before you take the step, consider how objective the sin is. Are you confronting them because you think they're spending too much money or because you think they're prideful? Remember, only God knows the heart. If this is a subjective issue, like one of those, better to drop the matter and pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them rather than you seek to be the Holy Spirit for them. Second, if you move forward, make sure that the person or people you bring with you are trustworthy and discreet, that they're impartial and have good judgment. And third, let the offender know what you're about to do. Don't spring a conversation on them without warning. Fourth, be careful not to try to lobby the witness to your side. Just let the facts speak for themselves. And again, remember, the goal of going to someone in this corrective church discipline is not so that you are vindicated or that you are right or so that their sin is pointed out so that they're wrong. Rather, it is the glory of God itself. The glory of God itself is that thing that we are most after. And when we remove the glory of God from these steps, it can feel more like a courtroom setting where we're just seeking to be right. We're just seeking to win. We're seeking to preserve our undefeated streak in arguments. Rather than to see going to our brother and sister in love with the glory of God on our minds, to be that which we've won our brother or sister back from sin that was damaging to them, that was causing uh, ill repute upon the name of Christ, that was bringing division and dissension within the church or leading that direction. So remember the glory of God is our motivation, our obedience to Christ, our love for His church. Well, that's step two. Any questions about the first step, going to your brother or sister alone, and if he or she won't listen, and taking one or two others. Any questions or comments about those first two steps before we go to that third step of tell it to the church? All right, let's keep going then. Tell it to the church. If the offender still refuses to listen, the church needs to be brought in. And they can excommunicate him or her if he or she still refuses to repent. In Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't, specific, or doesn't specify that the leaders of the church are to be consulted prior to taking the matters to the church. But certainly that's the intermediate step that seems appropriate and consistent with these instructions. So looking at the, these steps in Matthew 18 then, we can see Jesus trying to involve the fewest number of people possible but he's still willing to make things public if that's what will wake up this sinner. So at that final state, even if he uses those outside the church and Satan himself to providentially push toward repentance. So early we see that we're to go to that person individually. If they don't receive that correction, we're to take one or two others. And if they don't receive that correction, then we're to tell it to the church. So what if you see 
a member sin against another member. The next line there on your outline. Well, the answer is, it kind of depends. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In Luke 17.3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us not to be busybodies looking for opportunities to point out faults in others. Think 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, 1 Peter 4, 15. All of us are sinners. And so it'd be impossible and frankly unproductive to call attention to every single sin that we witness. Doesn't mean we turn a blind eye. It just means that we rightly understand that we are in process. We are in process being made and conformed more into the image and likeness of the Son of Christ or the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through that formative discipline that we talked about earlier. So how do we know when it's appropriate time to approach a brother or sister about sin? Well, first, is the sin bringing dishonor to God? Is it visible enough that it is lying about God to non-Christians? In other words, is what they're doing bringing reproach upon the name of Christ to a watching world? Now again, remember, we're under that category of our second question. What if you see a member sin against another member? Second, is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example for younger Christians? Third, could it lead to discord or disunity in the church? And then fourth, is it, serious, is it seriously harming the offender or the sinner by damaging his or her relationship with God or in other ways? So if one or more of those answers are yes, then it would probably be appropriate to talk to that brother or sister about the sin. And the less relationship you have with that person, the higher the bar for talking with them. The better you know them, and the more trust in that relationship, the lower the bar. In other words, I can go to um, Cole Pinnock, whom I've known a long time, more directly than I can someone who's just recently joined the church. There's a, a history of relationship around gospel things around our shared desire to see a God glorified in our lives that doesn't excuse me to be sharp, not at all, but it means I can go more directly versus someone that I know uh, not as well Then I would want to go more gently with the same goal in mind. What about, this is the next on your outline, what about heinous sin? So think 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. That's key for our understanding here. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
heinous sin. So over the years, much has been made of the differences between the church discipline case in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells the church to expel a man for sleeping with his father's wife, and Matthew 18 that we just looked at. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul doesn't ask about the man's repentance. He simply instructs the church to put him out of fellowship. So what's going on there? Is this some sort of fast track for church discipline that Jesus didn't describe? Well, what seems to be taking place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is is the seriousness or the heinousness of the sin. So it's beyond what's acceptable in society. That there's really nothing the man could say that would convince the church of his repentance at that time. So sometimes the credibility of any claim to repentance is so shot, so marred, that the church should be quick to remove that person from fellowship for the purpose of preserving the glory of God. Both you and your, uh, both for your good and for the reputation of Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5. It was swift and decisive. And Paul is dumbfounded that they haven't yet done this. In fact, he says, and you are arrogant, both for your good and for the reputation of Christ. Then if by God's grace, your claim to repentance becomes credible again, or this person's claim to repentance becomes credible again, that ban of excommunication is removed and that brother or sister would be brought back into fellowship in the church. Next, how do I relate to someone who's been put out of the church or excommunicated? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, we read that we should not associate with any such person. In Matthew 18.17, Jesus says to treat the person as you would a pagan or tax collector. So, but what does this look like in practice? We hear those words, but what does it mean practically? Well, it means we should treat that individual as if he or she is an unbeliever because part of what the church's action has been to say, hey, I know you say that you're a Christian, but by your actions, they would prove otherwise. For one who would claim the name of Christ would not walk in this manner. And therefore, the church is removing our ability to say that's a credible profession and we're to treat you as an unbeliever. So it, should, it means that we should treat them as such. But not just any unbeliever, as an unbeliever who tragically thinks that they're okay. And it's helpful for us to stop and think, well, how do we treat unbelievers? Well, hopefully we treat them with compassion and concern and we pray for them and we think about the ways in which We can speak the gospel in ways that would awaken their cold hearts by the Spirit of God. So we're truthful, we're clear, we're patient, we're prayerful, we're sorrowful for their sin. Sometimes I think when we think about this step, how should we treat them? Treat them as an unbeliever. We hear that in a negative way rather than in a positive way to say, oh my goodness, this person whom I once called brother or sister, I can no longer give that title. That's what it means to remove that that credible profession. We cannot affirm it any longer. So I have to relate to them in a different way as not a brother or sister in Christ, rather as one who is in danger of their soul being lost and forever cast into hell because of their sin and their unrepentance. 
So should we encourage him to attend church? Absolutely. Where else would you want sinners to be but to hear the preached word? And we should act loving and kindly towards him when we do see him or her. But when we do see him or her, we should take care to exhort them to repent. We should never simply interact casually if nothing is wrong, like everything has gone on, like we would another Christian, or even a non-Christian who knows he's a non-Christian. That's the sense we get in 1 Corinthians 5.11, not even to eat with such a one. So we have to be careful, and we have to think about how our words mark us off. It's not uncommon here in a greeting to say, hey, good morning, brother, grateful for your preaching this morning, brother. What are we saying in that? We're saying that there's a shared bond that we have in a spiritual family. So we address one another's brother and sister in Christ. But when we remove that label from one, we be careful not to use that label lest we give them false hope that they are okay with Christ. We would say no. That sin is, is dangerous. It's not becoming of one who bears the name of Christ. And so we ought to be careful not to use those words, but then we have to change the way that we associate and interact with that person. But again, with the glory of God on the frontlets of our eyes, with compassionate hearts, with the gospel ready on our lips, we do continue to pursue that person as one who needs the gospel. Let's move on then to our next question. What if a church leader sins? Well, this is the last topic that I want to address this morning and what the scripture says about sin among leaders. Yes. Yeah, I think, uh, so the question is, as we look at the outline, treat an offender as an unbeliever, lovingly encourage him to repent, but avoid purely social interaction. I think what that has in mind is not an extra step, but one of greater caution. In other words, we'll even see in our scripture passage in the service today from Mark chapter 7, where Jesus um, most harshly rebukes those that think they are in right standing with him, but their hearts are far from him. So you think about Jesus' ministry and, and uh, to people, he was most compassionate to those that were clearly living in sin, but they, they didn't know any different. They were just pursuing their own way. He was most harsh in his interactions in a loving and perfect, holy way, right, to those that thought that they were okay. And so by their outward appearance, they thought they were right with the Lord, but their inward condition was far from him. So I think that's really what it's getting at is we have to change the way that we would socially interact with those that have been put outside the church lest we confuse them and lest we confuse others to say that really there's no difference. So we're going to continue to, to minister them in the same way that we would, you know, a, a week or a month ago. We're going to change that to be more evangelistically geared and targeted, but we're, we're going to be very careful that there is a distinction between us and them, and that is that inward heart change. 
How do you know if they have not changed inwardly? I think, so this would be my quick two cents here, is I think, yeah, then I think it will be evident. Meaning, I think it will be very clear that what was once true that led them to be excommunicated or removed from membership will be clear that there are wonderful godly steps towards repentance. I think they'll want to talk about it. I think that they will out, they will inwardly show, and then outwardly it will be evident. And it'll be what they talk about is they, they're blinded to their sin. They will be grateful, hard, yes, but I think they'll be grateful for a church that loved them enough to say, this is danger, and we can't allow you to continue on that dangerous path. So I think it'll be evident. Now, it's going to take time. I don't think it'll be overnight. could be, but I don't think it will be. But I think it'll be evident in the conversations you have with them and what they want to talk about. Yeah, great questions. What if a church leader sins? So let's look then at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, so that the rest may stand in fear. Let me read that again. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So Paul's giving special uh, caution to protect elders from um, quick or um, sinful attacks. So before a disciplined action against an elder can be brought, there must be two or three witnesses. The wisdom of this is clear. Church leaders must uh, often engage in situations that may lead to unfounded accusations against them. With this in mind, let's think about two different situations that might arise in the church. First, what if you hear rumors of an accusation against an elder? And then second, what if you encounter an elder in sin? So first, let's look at rumors of accusation. So what if someone tells you a story that they've witnessed an elder in sin, or they think they have. What's your responsibility? Well, first and foremost, to ensure you're not party to gossip or slander, you should encourage that brother or sister to go and talk to their brother, as we're called in Matthew 18. Not to you. So actively discourage them from slandering that elder in a conversation like that. Take them to the scriptures. If your brother sinned against you, go to him, him, you, and you alone. There are two exceptions to this rule. If you've witnessed that a particular sin and that this person is coming to you as per the requirements of 1 Timothy 5.19, or if they're asking you to serve as a witness even though you've not been an eyewitness. For example, if, a, if tragically a pastor makes a sexual advance towards another female congregation member. And it was only those two present. Though you didn't witness the event, it's important to listen and investigate such claims or actual sin. What if you witness an elder in sin? That'll be the second question. What if an elder sins against you or you witness an elder sinning? What do you do then? Quite simply, you talk to them about it. Keep in mind that the situation may not be as it appears. So act humbly, remembering that they're serving as an elder because at least in the past, our church has found them to be 
above reproach. Not perfect, but above reproach. There's something in their lives that the church congregation said, this is a shepherd among sheep and we're recognizing, recognizing them as such and we're willing and joyfully desirous to follow their leading as they're following the example of Christ. In other words, it's wise to give them the benefit of the doubt. What if you're uncomfortable approaching them? Perhaps, though I pray this never happens, they've sinned in intimidating or abusing you. It's okay to approach another elder or individual in the church with your concern, where your intent is to keep the matter quiet and discreet and involve a minimal number of people I don't believe you're violating 1 Timothy 5, 19. So let's say that you've discussed the matter with the elder. Perhaps open the scriptures to show them their sin and they don't repent. Well, recall what we said earlier about the objective. If it's an issue of pride, something you can't be sure of, then stop pursuing the matter and pray. If the matter is something that's objectively verifiable, like embezzlement or sexual misconduct, for example, then you must continue to follow 1 Timothy 5.19. I say must because discipline, even discipline of an elder, is not optional in the church. It is our responsibility before God. So what's the next step? Well, speak with others you know who witness the sin. Ask them to confront the elder with you, and if necessary, bring the matter to the other elders. They will be acting as the witnesses called in 1 Timothy 5.19. And again, we started off this whole last question as one that we pray never takes place here. But we ought to know what our responsibility is. We ought to know what our charge is. We ought to know what the recourse is for an elder or brother, sister, or an elder who's caught in sin. So take the matter seriously. Pray Pray for protection over the elders. Pray that God would, would help the elders by his spirit to, uh, to protect their life and doctrine. Seek to encourage the elders in that way. I think it's okay to ask elders, hey, what are you all doing to encourage one another? What are you doing to protect one another? Not like a checklist, but just say, hey, I'm curious. The job that you have is not an easy one. How are you all working together to protect one another? That's going to happen informally and formally. Things like elder retreats uh, have been helpful for us in thinking through those matters. Uh, there are times for which we spend time as elders asking one another questions. Hey, what are you struggling with? How are things going spiritually? How's your relationships? Is there anything that we can pray for you in? That's going to happen more formally in the setting of all the elders. And it happens informally just as we gather together to do life on life with one another. We're asking those types of questions. So as we think about sort of drawing our time to a close, why does church discipline matter? Well, quite simply because the reputation and the glory of Christ matters. Because the church matters. And the church only matters when it's different from the world. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Matthew 5, 13. 
And church discipline is the tool Jesus gave us all the way back in Matthew chapter 18 when he inaugurated the church to keep us different from the world. So when we look different, we herald the gospel in a profoundly compelling way. We spur each other on towards love and good deeds. We protect the message of the gospel for the next generation. Think about that. Like the ways in which that we do and take seriously the charges of Christ, we actually participate in protecting the message of the gospel for the next generation. In other words, God's word and God's way will protect God's church. And if we're willing to do that hard work, then we are serving the next generation. Particularly in a world that seems as if the gospel itself is more subjective to what I think, what I feel, the way I want to fit it into my box. But when we become just like the world, we're professing that there's nothing unique about the gospel when the reality is it's the best news that one could ever hear. So my encouragement to us as we consider church discipline is keep the gospel on the forefront of our eyes. That we would see sin as no joke or something casual in the sight of God. That we would put to death the desires of our flesh. And in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have to take this matter seriously. But it also ought to be our joy to seek both corrective discipline and formative discipline for the glory of God and for the good of his church. Any questions before we close in prayer this morning? Any comments? Heavy subject, but one that we ought to take seriously and joyfully because we do want to see when we have to do corrective church discipline, the goal is not simply to cast one out, but to to alarm them to the sin that by their own actions is casting them out. The goal is still the same. We want to see that brother or sister repent and return to Christ. Any final questions or comments? Yeah, so the question is, what if you see sin in an elder, but it seems more widespread, more systemic? Like, what's the recourse? Yeah, I would still start with the, with the steps that we had there. And, I, I mean, prayerfully, you ought to be able to go to the chairman of the elders. Um, and, but let's say he's in this scenario. Let's say you feel like he's part of the problem. And I would say, perhaps go to that elder that you know the best and make your observations and then follow the steps that we've already outlined. Um, yeah, again, prayerfully, that doesn't happen, right? But I think, again, great question because we need to be equipped. We need to know what to do. See, I can say personally, I think some of the more powerful things to do is to pray for the person who's offended you. Mm-hmm. If you've been offended, yeah. you know, if there's an offense there. Uh, in my own experience, in my own life, there was, that was the only step I took. And 20 years later, mm-hmm. I had Mm. Yeah. 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 Just a good word that one of those steps that I think we so often overlook 
is praying for those that have sinned against us. And it's similar to, I don't think we don't believe in the power of prayer. I think we think it's not enough. In the sense that we feel like there's something we ought, we must do. And we hear that all the time just in caring for one another. Hey, is there anything I can do other than pray for you? Right? And then at the end of the day, we should be saying like, hey, I am praying for you. And I'm believing with you that, you know, that God will make his will clear that, yeah, that I will have a better understanding. So using prayer is the tool that God intends for it to be. That's a good word. Yeah. Not, not neglecting, just spending time and praying and reflecting on your own sin as well as the sin of that other person. Well, let me pray for us to conclude our time, and then we will get ready to go sit under the preaching of the word where we will pray that formative discipline will take place in our own hearts. And let me pray for us. God, we are grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the faithfulness of your word. We're grateful for your love for your church. And God, we're grateful that we bear the name of Christ and in that as much responsibility for we are the beneficiaries of unimaginable glory and grace and gifts Father, for one day we will be in your presence forever where there will be no more sin, no more sinning against one another, no more sinning in our own heart. But until then, Father, we pray that we would not have a critical spirit, but a discerning one. Father, one that cares so much about the glory of your great name that we would be willing to go to our brother, sister in Christ, follow these steps as we've been charged by your word, to pray and to see reconciliation amongst brothers and sisters, that the reputation of Christ, that the the glory of your great name would be that which draws sinners to yourself over and over again. Father, that we would see the distinctness of the church set apart for your glory would be what wakes a watching world to see there's something different about your church. Oh God, we pray that you'd protect us. We pray that you would embolden us. And we pray, Father, even now as we go and sit under the preaching of your word, that you would be correcting where we need to be corrected for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.